Welcome to the Collective Impact Forum podcast, here to share resources to support social change makers working on cross-sector collaboration. The Collective Impact Forum is a nonprofit field-building initiative that's co-hosted in a partnership by the nonprofit consulting firm FSG and the Aspen Institute Forum for Community Solutions. In this episode, we discuss the data practice of community-led monitoring and how this practice can help inform and influence collaborative change efforts. To learn more about it, we talk with the International Treatment Preparedness Coalition, otherwise known as ITPC, which is a global network that works to achieve universal access to HIV treatment and other life-saving medicines. One of ITPC's core strategies is to watch what matters, which includes supporting data gathering and analysis that's centered on and led by community members and reflects the issues and questions that are most important to people living with and affected by HIV. To share about what they've learned from their community-led monitoring work, we hear from ITPC's Executive Director Solange Baptiste and Citizen Science Lead Crystal Lauer. They share how data practices like community-led monitoring can unearth community access barriers and pain points within a system, and how that information can be gathered to inform advocacy efforts and policy change. Moderating this discussion is Collective Impact Forum Executive Director Jennifer Splansky-Juster. Let's tune in. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast. I'm Jennifer Jester, Executive Director of the Collective Impact Forum. I am really excited for today's conversation with two leaders from ITPC. ITPC is a global network of people living with HIV, community activists, and their supporters working to achieve universal access to HIV treatment and other life-saving medicines. While there are many reasons I'm looking forward to our conversation, I want to name two in particular. Well, first, most often here at the Collective Impact Forum, and often in social impact circles here in the United States, we look within our own national borders for examples of interesting work and promising practices from which to learn. And when we think something is working well, and I'm using air quotes, more often than not, we try to share it with folks outside the U.S., While there are times and places for that, for sure, I don't think that often enough we have been looking at folks doing amazing work outside our national borders here in the United States or outside the global north for learning and inspiration. And in this conversation, we'll be doing just that, learning with folks from the ITPC, whose network spans across West Africa, North Africa and the Middle East, Latin America and the Caribbean, South Asia and Eastern Europe and Central Asia. Second, I'm also excited about today's topic, community-led monitoring. This approach to monitoring, learning, and advocacy holds great relevance for folks doing collective impact work, where we know that shared measurement or using data as a collaborative to learn, improve, and hold each other accountable is a really high priority. And so joining me in today's conversation are two leaders from this work. Each will introduce themselves more fully in a moment, but it's my pleasure to welcome Solange Baptiste, Executive Director of ITPC, and Crystal Lauer, Citizen Science Lead with ITPC. So welcome, and I would just love to start by asking you to introduce yourself more fully and tell us a little bit about what brought you to your work with ITPC. And we can start with you, Solange. Great, thank you. Thank you so much for having us at the podcast. 
I am. I am a wife. I am a mother of two. I am the executive director of the International Treatment Preparedness Coalition, or ITPC. Um, my background is in public health and community system strengthening in a, in a broad sense. Um, I am from Trinidad originally, which is a very tiny island in the Caribbean. And I'm currently sitting in Johannesburg in South Africa, um, where ITPC is based. So um, I'm a little bit cold because it's very cold in South Africa these days. <laughs> so yeah, I'm just uh, happy to have, have the opportunity to be on the podcast. Thanks. Wonderful. Uh, Krista. Hi, thanks for having me as well. My name is Krista Lauer. I am the citizen science lead at ITPC Global. Uh, I have a background in HIV and human rights, uh, including in LGBTQ plus rights. I'm originally from Canada, but I'm speaking with you today from Seattle in the United States. And my portfolio of work at ITPC Global is the Watch What Matters strategic focus area, uh, which includes community-led monitoring. Really happy to be here today. Wonderful. So tell us a little bit more about ITPC a little bit about your founding, your mission, and bring us up to date. Yeah, so ITPC, a mouthful, it's the International Treatment Preparedness Coalition. And I must say, we are not so savvy with the name because it doesn't translate very well. It's a mouthful, and it's a sort of a running sort of internal joke, which I'm clearly now putting out in the public. But um, it was an international meeting that uh, happened in 2003. So ITPC is actually celebrating its 20 year anniversary this year. Um, so woohoo. And it, we had a meeting in 2003 in Cape Town in South Africa of about 125 activists from 67 countries. And that was a time when um, the cost of ARVs or antiretroviral medicines um, were just you know, prohibitively expensive for people living in the global south. Um, and so there was this, you know, I would say a ragtag bunch of people who were just very upset with the inequity because medicines were available um, in the US, um, were not as available in the global south, um, and they were also very expensive. And so this meeting really was called the International, International Treatment Preparedness Summit. So then we took out the word summit and made coalition and that's how you got ITPC. But the whole idea was to really band together and you know, advocate for a drastic reduction in um, the pricing of the medicines and to work with manufacturing and really try to figure out how to get competition and, and open up the markets for generic uh, medicines so that um, people who need medicines can actually get them. And we had a long pathway through many different evolutions of an organization, you can imagine through 20 years um, to where we are today. Um, we moved through the collaborative fund, which was a fund to be able to give um, small grants really, but instead of a top-down model, it was really a bottom-up model, which looked at um, how people in across the globe in their regional um, groupings were able to decide what their issues were and then say, okay, let's figure out our own governance and let's use these small grants. So small grants, high impact because who was making this, the decision were the people who were most affected. And then we moved through, I don't know, um, 
many different little iterations of, of trials. So we had the three by five. So there was, um, you know, this WHO initiative of trying to get ARV therapy to 3 million people by 2005. And we used to see when you're missing that target. So we had this missing the target report on different themes across the years. But as we've grown now, we've landed on three um, strategic focus areas. And, you know, Chris, I can talk more about that, but um, we really just were built on love. I would say we started off by just looking at the injustice that was happening across the globe when your friends are dying and you have the medicine and they don't. It's just in the DNA of ITPC to really just silence is inaction, silence is a violation. At that point, you have to do something. So I think that's how we, that's our story. Yeah, and I'll just build from there. Um, as Solange mentioned, we have three strategic focus areas, but the center, the foundation of all of our work, everything we do is really centered around the idea of treat people right. And we love the word treat because it can mean treatment in the in the context of health, but it can also just mean your right to health, the way that we uh, show up for each other. So we kind of do that in two ways. Um we really center it on providing evidence-based scientific health information to people um, so that you can understand your own health and then advocate for your own needs. So for example, if you're a person living with HIV, do you understand what happens if you miss a dose of medication? What happens if you have a treatment interruption? How does that affect your body and your health? And once you're empowered with that information, you're better able to ask for the services and standard of care that you deserve. So the three strategic focus areas that we use to bring that vision to life is first of all, making medicines affordable or MMA. And this is where we work to make sure that the medicines and the services that people need are available. They're either free or reasonably priced and they're accessible. The second is Watch What Matters, which is my portfolio. And this is where we work to monitor what are the barriers to staying healthy? Um, what is impeding people from having access to that medication and those services that they need. And we also raise the alarm when we identify those problems. Some of these problems could be things like medicine stockouts or um, discrimination by a health service provider when you're trying to access services. And the third and final part is building resilient communities or BRC. And this is really how are we going to achieve all of those things that I've just named? We have to nurture communities that have capacity to organize, understand how to take action, where are the entry points, how is policy made, who is making the decisions, where's the money going, and using all of that collective information to make the change that they deserve. So that's us in a nutshell. Thank you. And one of the things I also understand about your model that I'd love you to share a little bit more about is that you're a network of networks. So we mentioned all of the geographies where you, your networks are present. Can you talk a little bit about that network of networks structure? Yes, absolutely. So I think if you followed our story before, you know, I would, um, back in the day, I would say, you know, ITPC is a network of 15 regional networks, and I would just list all the ones and that were, you know, we're in 2023 now in a very different world. And even then we were able to see that, you know, the old way of having bricks and mortar to show that, yes, we exist and we are valid and we are credible. Look, our sign, we, we exist. Um, has changed. And so we have what we call a global activist network. And so that mission to achieve health and social justice through community engagement is really seen across the globe. 
but through different kinds of strategic engage engagements. So from ITPC Latin America and the Caribbean to ITPC West Africa, ITPC Middle East and North Africa, ITPC Eastern Europe and Central Asia, and ITPC South Asia, plus any other sort of engagement. So individuals make up that network, um, other partner organizations that we have worked with, uh, small community-based organizations, you know, grassroots, grass tops, um, you know, and we also partner with, um, when I say uh, normative agencies, so we've worked with the WHO, we've executed work with them, we are very much involved with UNAIDS, the Global Fund, the, the usual players that you would expect within, within this space. So I'd like to call it organized chaos. If you think of, okay, we're all over the place, but we have strategic ways of managing our engagements and, and getting the work done. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Strate <laughs> the strategic chaos, that's a fun, fun way to refer to it. Yes, we get emails at every single hour of the day. There you go. <laughs> Awake in every time zone. <laughs> there you go. Um, always on, always on it. So uh, today, as I mentioned, we want to dive in a little bit more to your Watch What Matters portfolio, and in particular, this idea of community-led monitoring, which um, I understand to be a community-driven, equity-centered approach to using data to inform the work of ITPC and your partners and effectively advocate for addressing the barriers to care for people living with HIV. So... Could one of you please give me your formal definition of community-led monitoring so we can all share that and talk a little bit about why this is so important? Formal definition, I will hand over to Krista. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me just start by saying, uh, as community-led monitoring has become more and more popular, there are many, many definitions. But I would say for me and for us as ITPC, it's really using community data to monitor and uh, quantify and qualify the extent of an issue and using that data to advocate for change. So a very concrete example I will give is if recipients of care, people accessing services, come to a health facility and have a long wait. In the past, they would say perhaps to a healthcare provider, wow, I really had a long wait today. And that would sort of be an anecdote. But we have found that once you develop indicators and you begin monitoring specific data, you are better able to qualify and quantify the extent of that issue. So all of a sudden you have data that says, you know, in the last quarter at this health facility, the average wait time was six and a half hours. And in these 15 health facilities in this district, the average wait time overall was between four and eight hours. And all of a sudden you can really um, understand the extent of a problem, and that provides an entry point to really getting a collective of people to understand what's the root cause of this issue and how can we better address it. So really, it's an approach, it's a tool that we use to um, give a platform to the extent of challenges and barriers that recipients of care in our context are facing and using that data, harnessing the power of that data for problem solving. And tell me a little bit more, Krista Solange, when you when we call it community led, is it residents and folks living with HIV that are identifying what needs to be measured? Yes. So I think it's always helpful to kind of say what community led monitoring is not. 
So it's mm. not community-based monitoring. So people listening to this might Google like a community interventions or community things. And you'll see that it, there's a mix. Even the Global Fund only recently stopped using community-based monitoring, which has the implication of where the monitoring happens, not who is leading the charge. So the way I think of it is if you need to change an indicator, who do you ask? That's where you actually identify where the power lies. And community-led monitoring is actually led by communities. And as Krista said, it starts at the pain point. What is the issue that you are facing in your lived experience? And that is the thing that you want to monitor. And this actually started for ITPC um, in, in the lived experiences of, of, of people living with HIV in West Africa who were facing tremendous um, and extensive uh, drug stockouts. Their medicines were not there. So they would go and they would say, um, came to collect my medicine. They'll say, okay, well, this is out of stock. So come back next week. And then when you raise it to a more of a policy or government level, they'll say, well, we don't have any stockouts. According to our, our system, you know, our supply chain, it's sitting in the reserves. So it's, it's, but it's not actually at the point where the clinic, where the person who needs the medicine can collect it. Now, what do you do? So people then took pencil to paper and started kind of saying, okay, name of medicine, how long it's been out of stock. And that then turned into something that was much more um, formal and systematic. And um, it's really this data over a period of time. So you're, you're, you're checking the same data, the same indicator over a period of time. So like how you would check your blood pressure. This is my blood pressure. You don't want to just check it once in January and then once in December and say, yeah, I'm fine. You're checking the same thing across a period of time to see trends. And, you know, I'm, I'm saying these things as an important part because often the issue is, is this data credible? Is this data, as Krista said, anecdotal? Is it a one-off? Is it just you found one root person who, you know, was having a bad day and, you know, everything's not that bad. You guys are just making it up. And so... And then they, you know, the criticism will come that the data may not be generalizable or you know, what is your sample size, but this is about trends in data. And you will find that it really helps to round out the whole data picture when you get community data from people who are actually living those experiences. Did I even answer that question? Absolutely, <laughs> it's really helpful. Krista, did you wanna to add to that? Um, I mean, I think Solange puts it so well yeah. and um, I really think the routine data collection is a really important part of it. I think sometimes people misunderstand community-led monitoring as a one-time snapshot, mm -hmm. but this is data. It's the same checklist. It's the same indicators you collect every month often, and that's how we can see what the trend is. And as Solange said, who is defining what these indicators are? They are communities, so they won't necessarily be what the priority is at health facility level. It could be wait times, it could be discrimination, it could be, you know, we saw in the context of COVID lockdown, sometimes people were waiting outside a clinic for their medication because they wanted to avoid crowding. All of a sudden, all of your neighbors and family members are seeing you publicly waiting outside this health facility. Maybe you weren't open about your zero status. So we're monitoring now what levels of privacy are still uh, accessible in the context of COVID. So again, who defines what the pain points are and who defines what we're monitoring? communities themselves. Yeah, those are, that's a really powerful example, Krista. And as I've learned a little bit more about community-led monitoring, um, I have learned about the four, what you called it, the four-part cycle of education, evidence, engagement, and advocacy, and how it, that full cycle is essential, right, to have the power of 
the promise of community-led monitoring. So could you tell our listeners a little bit more about the full uh, four-part process? Like what does that look like in practice? Yes, indeed. Ooh, the power of the promise. Uh, this is good podcast lingo. <laughs> um, well, if you go to our website, uh, and we'll speak to this again, but especially uh, clmhub.org, you will see our classic infographic that has four quadrants in it, really, uh, in a circle. And we always begin the community-led monitoring process from education. We work in health. For us, this is really understanding the science behind the disease, I would say science didn't used to be a controversial topic, but in this day and age, we let me state very clearly for the record, we are an evidence-based organization. So if we're working in the context of HIV or COVID or tuberculosis or be it what it may, we really want to make sure that everybody is on the same page about what is the science behind the disease? How does it affect your body? How does it work? From there, we then go into what is the normative guidance? What is the gold standard for the kind of care you need to address this illness? We often go to the World Health Organization, like Solange said, to say, for instance, if you're a person living with HIV, what is the standard for which you need viral load test results? So do you understand why you need a viral load test in the first place? And according to the global standards, how quickly should you get that information? And from there, we're better able to explore community pain points. So now that we understand the science behind the disease, what are some of the challenges that you're experiencing? So for instance, uh, Solange already talked about drug stockouts. I need this medication. I understand why adherence is so important and what will happen to my body if I miss a dose. Now we can zero in on these are some of the big community priorities, especially gaps and barriers. Uh, and so that's really where we start with education. The second piece is evidence. Now that we have identified those pain points, we develop those into indicators. So how can we really monitor and measure the extent of those barriers and gaps? Um, and this is where we work to define what we're going to measure on a monthly basis. Now, from the ITPC perspective, we really uh, suggest less is more when it comes to indicators. You can monitor anything and everything. You could ask people's eye color. You could ask what you had for breakfast. You could ask a million things. Less is really more. Um, the more indicators you have, the harder it is to do that data analysis on a monthly basis. It could be a fire hose of information coming at you. It's also more expensive the more indicators you add. So we really like to zero in and be very, very deliberate about what are the key pain points and only have 20 to 30 indicators, including a mix of qualitative and quantitative indicators. Um, the next piece is engagement. So now that we have all of this information, we have a ton of data, we conduct an analysis. What are the trends telling us? What are the major issues here? And we bring that information to a group of stakeholders that we call a community consultative group or a CCG. Uh, this is a structure of usually about 10 to 15 members. Uh, they include government organizations, civil society organizations, health facility managers, healthcare providers, uh, members of key populations, people living with HIV networks, maybe some research institutes or independent ex experts, and that group as a collective takes this information, looks at the data and tries to understand what are we learning here? And importantly, what can we do to fix it? What, what are the strategic opportunities to either facilitate advocacy actions or to implement a change? And then the final piece of the cycle, number four, is advocacy. So this is where we're working with policymakers to fix or improve 
services or systems or laws or practices that underlie these problems. Ideally, the whole process here is really about fact finding, not necessarily fault finding. We're not necessarily here to name and shame as our first step. We're really trying to understand what are the driving factors behind these barriers. But if we run into problems trying to execute the fixes or changes to this, then we will escalate and move to advocacy to try and um, make sure that those gaps are addressed. So for us, the end of this entire four-prong system isn't collecting interesting data to tell a story. It's did we fix the problem that was identified by communities? Did we make their lives better? So the measurement of success here is really achieving uh, concrete change. Do you have an example that you could share of a situation where that cycle sort of saw itself through to a policy change that benefited folks living with HIV in, in their community? So maybe I can jump in here and then Krista can give you one that's more recent, but the one that I like to, um, that comes to mind the most is, you know, we had a, a project that was funded by the Global Fund in West Africa, and it was, uh, it was a regional community treatment observatory. So a lot of words, but it's a observatory because that's sort of the French equivalent word to monitor, to observe, and the treatments, um, at a regional level. So what are the, what's happening across 11 countries? Short of this very long story, because this was a three-year project, but the one thing that I um, always sticks with me is, so the ambassador for, and I think many, many people will know Ambassador Burks now, given our COVID um, experience in the United States, um, uh, Ambassador Burks was very interested in the data that was coming from the civil society um, representatives in the room during the country operational planning process for Cote d'Ivoire um, as, as a part of PEPFAR. So PEPFAR, as you know, is, a, is the U.S. Um, response to HIV and there's sort of money that goes bilaterally to these different countries. So in Cote d'Ivoire, there's a negotiation. And in this room, we have this guy from um, Abidjan who's speaking saying, here's the data that we found. And he was talking about the actual user fees to be able to pay for services in the public health system in Cote d'Ivoire. And the ambassador was very taken aback for services that should have been free. And the level of granularity, the amount of detail and um, information that was grounded in people's lived realities is what startled her. And she says, we need this kind of data. And to be honest, that is how uh, community-led monitoring got into the country operational guidance for, um, for PEPFAR and also then took on a sort of new life because this is the kind of thing that should inform our programming because if you have less and less money you have to know where to put that money to have high impact right and so you need to then hear from the people who are actually having those experiences um, and so this then that turned into her talking with the government and you know the u.s Côte d'Ivoire negotiations etc but a circular being sent by the Ministry of Health to be able to say that this should no longer be happening and it changed the policy. We have several examples like that that take you from the start of the story. So education, you're supposed to know that you're not supposed to be paying for this service, 
as Krista went through the quadrants, right? Then there were indicators that were like, okay, so let's go find out, are people paying? Why is it that you're not going? Why do you have to pay for that um, diagnostic test or that blood draw or something that should be free? And then the engagement and the advocacy that then turned into a change. And that's where success lies with CLM at that very end point. So yeah, I think that's a good example. Yes, absolutely. And we've seen all different kinds of policy improvements. I mean, just a, a couple very quickly. In Cote d'Ivoire, we worked with partners um, on CLM, and ultimately the Ministry of Health used CLM data and evidence to eliminate user fees that were being charged to people living with HIV. That was a significant barrier to care. Um, in Malawi, managers at the Ministry of Health used CLM data to justify expanding working hours at public hospitals and making sure there were increased resources for HIV testing during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, you know, we've got lots of interesting uh, case studies of, of what's happened. One of our more recent ones that uh, always sticks with me is uh, HIV testing rates among sex workers in Malawi. Um, we saw testing rates across the board really take a dive in the context of COVID. But what was particularly interesting to us was that in Malawi, we saw a bounce back to pre-COVID testing rates among sex workers that tripled the previous number. And we were trying to understand what was it about community-led monitoring? This was at our monitoring sites that helped make that happen. And part of it was the CLM data collectors we had uh, sex workers themselves who were collecting the data and by being visible in community, asking people about their experiences at the clinics, being in the clinics, doing record surveys and interacting with health facility staff, the relationships that were built and the openness of the health system to vulnerable populations and to sex workers themselves, plus the information that was more readily accessible to sex worker communities through the role of the data collector, really had this impact that was greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah, those are both really um, illustrative examples. So thank you for sharing. And it's, you know, as I listen, um, it begs the question for me of how folks at the community level are actually collecting the data, like who's doing the data collection, what sort of um, I'm using again, sort of the air quotes capacity building is happening to support that at the local level. Can you talk a little bit about um, what that looks like? Yeah, certainly. I'll take this one and then Solange, please feel free to jump in. Um, as I just mentioned, the role of data collectors is really, really important. Um, if you think about, uh, have you ever left a business and at the end they say, please give us a rating? Oftentimes in the United States now, it's even on where you swipe your credit card. How is your service today? Rank me from one to nine. And you're literally standing in front of the person who's giving you the service. So how open can you be? Um, with community-led monitoring, the fact that peer uh, data collectors are the ones who are getting information from communities is really critically important because you tend to be more open and honest with your peers. We're also finding the data collectors that we've recruited often from networks of people living with HIV, um, networks of key populations also have additional leadership roles in the communities. Some of them are religious leaders, some of them are village chiefs, some of them have other roles in testing. Um, so that's very impactful. And also you can be more open with a peer. Um, Who's collecting the data? That's sort of the answer to that. And who is analyzing the data? So we do have partnerships with local institutions and persons who have expert data capacity. 
Uh, we have a large program right now in Malawi and South Africa, and we have partners at the University of Cape Town who are uh, experts in qualitative and quantitative data analysis. But what's important for us here is that there's also a transfer of skills and capacity to our local implementers. So there's a shared data analysis. There's some skills transfer in looking at of the raw data that's been collected, how are we now going to pull out the trends and issues? Um, and a final piece I'll say about understanding how this looks in practice, we are working to actively build community capacity on data collection and analysis, including through as what we have called the CLM Academy. Um, this is a one time a year, uh, three-day meeting where we identify highly capable CLM experts and champions and bring them together to dig really deep on technical issues and to build community with each other, including on issues such as integrated qualitative and quantitative data analysis. Um, in October of this year, we're actually doing our second CLM Academy that's going to be specifically focused on francophone experts uh, in recognition of the need for more CLM experts and champions in the West, North and Central African region um, who can be further trainers, training of trainers um, who can really sort of speak to the level of integrity and credibility in the CLM model that we've really pioneered um, and make sure to spread that methodology further. Um, Solange, I don't know if there's anything else I've missed that you want to add. I think the only thing I want to underscore is the importance of, um, you know, communities really being at leading. So it's, it's one thing for a community person to do the data collection and then take it back to the other important person and say, I've done my job. I really want to reiterate the importance of communities from the start to the finish, um, leading this initiative of monitoring and using the data, um, because that had come up in, in several conversations, because not every country context is, is as easy for communities to enter clinical spaces and to get, you know, the ethical clearance, the, the permissions, the, the authorizations to get into clinical records, except for example, um, and so the leadership of communities has to be really um, massaged from the beginning, if you will, like it, there must be a whole unramping. And I think what Krista was saying is, you know, with respect to the process, there's a whole host of work that happens before you start collecting data and figuring out your indicators. And that's the political understanding, because if there isn't government buy-in, what you're doing is trying to push yourself into a very clinical space, and that becomes very difficult uh, for effective uh, CLM to, to take place. And so when you have governments really understanding that this is a win-win, that by allowing communities and um, recipients of care into the space to help co-create solutions to the problems that we're facing, um, and that this is actually a win for the ministry and for the government, and it's not them coming to find fault with us and name us and shame us and all the other sort of sometimes irrational affairs that they've come up with, then you have an on-ramp. So now you're able to come in, you get access, you have ethical clearance, you're able to find the thing. And the one thing I would uh, add in there, there's something called a community consultative group which Krista talked about in the four quadrants. So when you get these data, you need to then understand what is it saying? What are the insights that we can glean from this and what's the advocacy plan? That sort of um, 
sometimes very fun and vocal hashing out happens in a version of a community consultative group. So that's usually an existing, um, pre-existing group that's already there, but it has to be led by the community. Can you imagine a community is going into other meetings where they get five minutes on the agenda and they try to explain the data, as opposed to you as the community organizing a meeting and inviting ministries or district or provincial health officials, as well as medical staff, supervisors and communities and normative uh, folks across UNAIDS or wherever to then discuss what the issues are. And I think that's where the sausage is made. And we often kind of skip over that and then boom, you have a policy change. There's a lot of hard work, a lot of meetings, a lot of slides, a lot of, but this is what we're seeing. How can we change it that happens in there? Yeah, thank you. So I have to imagine that, uh, and you've alluded to as we've gone, some challenges um, in putting this into practice at a community level. Are there other challenges that you would lift up that communities have faced so listeners can think about what to anticipate as they might move in this direction? Yeah, there, there are a ton. <laughs> this is a this is, I think it's a relatively new space. You know why? It's because you're pushing community data to have a level of credibility that is almost parallel and equal to their traditional academics. So you have your randomized control science PhD people who come up and say, well, the study shows and the power and the p-value and the this and the that. And then you have communities saying, well, our data shows. And there's often this sort of, well, that one, of course we can trust blindly. And then this one, we're like, well, poking holes in everything. And so CLM is relatively new in becoming a discipline. But because it actually gets at the core of power and governance, it has a lot of political nuance to it. And so you're trying to get something that is politically feasible, but also technically sound and scientifically sound. And I think that's the balance and where the challenge lies. So you have more authoritarian governments who will say there's no way I'm letting a community person get access to this kind of stuff. And then you have more um, friendly organized um, governments that will say, yes, of course, I can see how this will be a win for us. And you even then get um, clinical uh, staff and ministry folks of the Ministry of Health saying, you know, they keep us on our toes. We have an actual um, report that's called They Keep Us on Our Toes. And who said that was really important because he was saying, he was from the ministry saying that, you know, this is really helpful. We're finding actual issues in our data that have been corrected now because community people have come in and we've been able to um, correct and adjust some of our own issues. Yeah, there's more, I'm sure. Krista, go ahead. <laughs> yes, how long is this podcast again? No, I'm kidding. Um, certainly there are some challenges. I think a couple of the main ones for me right now is, as Solange said, community-led monitoring is sort of starting to get to the top of the agenda of some really important multilateral funders and, and policy agendas. And I think the shiny piece of it is the data. Everyone gets excited about, okay, we could have more information. We could have data that's centered really in communities. And there's this huge push to get to what are the indicators? And I need three months of data collected ASAP. But there's a lot of preparatory work that needs to go into getting to that space. As Solange said, there needs to be briefings for all of the partners. What is community-led monitoring? Why are you doing this? Why would a community person be coming into a health facility? What are they looking at? You know, I think 
the idea of monitoring for any of us, if you think about someone coming in to monitor you doing your job, do you really like the idea of someone looking over your shoulder as you're doing whatever your work is? So really having that foundational conversation about what is the purpose of this? Why are we doing this? What are we collecting? Who is it serving is very, very important. Um, and it's kind of an art and a science to do it. I mean, there's certainly the science and the methodology behind setting up monitoring in a credible way, but there's also the arts of the diplomacy of having those conversations of making sure key stakeholders and, and gatekeepers are on board to really make the, the uh, methodology work. I also still think there's a little, there's a problem with the power and balance of how we view communities as experts. And I think there's still this uh, tendency to want to have the official panel and the official experts, and then at the very end, sprinkle a little community on top. We would love to see the hard quantitative data, the scientific data, but then I'd love a quote from a person, or we'd love a five-minute testimonial after we've given 25 minutes to these other more expert speakers. I think that is not serving any of us. Communities are experts in their own right, and they should be at the table, and they should have a leadership position in addressing the critical issues of today. And I think until we can achieve that mindset and that shift toward whose data counts, whose expertise is valuable, we're never going to get to the kinds of solutions and the kinds of um, work to address core issues that we could if we really took community data and community leadership and expertise seriously. Yeah, thank you, Krista and Solange. And I think it's reminded me a lot of the conversations that we've been hearing here um, in the U.S. around research justice and data justice. And I think this is a very helpful conversation and a, a not easy, but practical and specific way to really shift that power when it comes to research and data justice. So um, just so important. Most of the folks that are listening are thinking about doing collaborative work on other issues, other health, other environmental, other social issues in their communities. Could you share a little bit about how this approach can be applied to other social or environmental challenges? Sure. I, I think it's really important to understand that although we are speaking as folks that work primarily in HIV, but in health, and you know, we have had CLM and TB, CLM for hepatitis C, we have many reports when you go to that clmhub.org, um, you'll see the range of health um, uh, disease areas that we have applied the model. But the important thing is the model. So a model can be applied to anything. And I think it's, it's appropriate to understand what community pain points are. So whether that is police brutality or voter fraud or um, you know, what is the, the changing um, in, the, in the, I don't know, bees, like they're no longer in this area or a particular animal or species that you're tracking changes. And often it's the pharma, it's as an, F-A-R-M-E-R, -E <laughs> sorry, I can't say that without thinking pharmaceutical companies, the pharma, the agricultural person who's sitting in the field who will see the difference in the climate or see what's happening with the certain, uh, you know, animal or insect that is, is there and say, okay, something's not right. So it's almost like citizen level surveillance. And it's a, it's a, um, what you call it? It's, um, it's community-led monitoring and it's a model that can be applied anywhere. 
And as long as you understand the pain point, communities can walk through the education. Well, it should be like this. Something's not right. Let's check on it. And then let's engage to change. I mean, that's essentially the model, right? So I think if you Google, and Krista could probably give you some more um, concrete examples of, of what that looks like applied in other spaces. Yeah, for sure. Um, again, like we work in the health space, but looking around at some other ways people have used this approach. There's been a lot of interesting work in climate already on community-led monitoring. I've seen some studies on forest use and displacement. Um, there was an interesting study I was looking at just this morning about community mo monitoring of coliform bacteria in drinking water in Lake Tanganyika. And they trained local citizen scientists to do low cost measurements of sort of what's the level of bacteria. They did follow-up sampling and analysis. And then they were able to inform their other community members, like local people impacted by this about what they were finding, but also level that up to regulatory bodies about these are some of the high risk conditions. And then also, I love this part about uh, you know, coming back to the community to validate what kind of mitigation actions might work. Given everything that you found, do you also think this would be a helpful solution? You know, we see it in CLM applied in the context of sexual and reproductive health and rights. Um, again, you can develop a monitoring checklist. If you have, you know, the World Health Organization developed consolidated guidelines on SRHR and rights of women living with HIV. So communities can say, if this is, if these are the guidelines, this is how I would want it to be expressed in my community. So here's my checklist. Is that actually happening? I would say the only thing about the approach is it really does require a level of advocacy maturity in the community movement. So it's one thing to understand the science or the basis or the, the normative guidance or um, you know, the science for how much bacteria should be in my water and to collect the data. But then what do you do with it? Because sometimes it can be very uncomfortable to use that data for advocacy. We would love to always be in a community consultative group where everyone equally agrees that the data is credible and we should take action. What do you do to hold uh, people in power accountable if you're not getting to change? And I would say our advantage in the HIV movement is that we have 40 years of experience of having those hard conversations and of being strategic about where are the entry points, where should we put our efforts? And so, you know, there, there are certainly some fields that we've looked at that don't necessarily have that maturity yet in how do you advocate? How do you come up with an agenda? What is the campaign? And so that's maybe an area where we would love to also see some more investment. It's um, a critical part of the approach. It's something that's often just assumed that, okay, once you collect this data, you'll automatically know how to get a decision maker to take action on it. And data alone is not enough. You can present very compelling data to a decision maker and it won't be enough. I'm sure as all of the listeners on this podcast already know. So bringing in that full um, range of skills and abilities is really critical. And I think that's where I'd love to see more collaboration across movements, learning from each other, um, tying into bigger platforms. There are a lot of high level meetings now that are happening on things like pandemic preparedness. That's not just a health issue. That's a financing issue. That's a security issue. That's a climate issue as the world heats up. We're seeing mosquitoes expand to other areas and uh, different diseases expanding to places that we've never seen them before. So I really think that CLM is an opportunity where we can sort of collaborate across our previous silos. 
Yeah. And I, I really appreciate you calling out the importance of the whole cycle, right? And um, having the skills and the training and the ability, right, to use the data for advocacy to see the change, which is, of course, ultimately the point. So as we wrap up, I just want to ask if there's anything that we haven't talked about that you'd really like to share with uh, the listeners about community-led monitoring recommendations or other things to think about. Yeah, maybe I can just jump off of the point that Krista just made and um, wrap up um, my thinking around community-led monitoring. And I really think that as we, if you take a step back and really try to understand community-led monitoring within the wider context, it is around community system strengthening and, um, you know, sort of what was described before about building the resiliency within communities and building communities themselves to be able to carry this work out. So you can't just assume that people have skills, staffing, uh, infrastructure, and resourcing to just go collect data. And so um, many governments and donors often just want the data to be able to make their own decisions. But what we're saying is, please make space at the table for communities. They're not just coming as uh, recipients or victims of the system, but are equal partners at the table. And we're bringing data, we're bringing solutions. And the idea of co-creation, not just being uh, validation of a construct or an idea that was you know, made up in somebody's head in Geneva. There was like, this will be a good idea. Let's do this thing. Let's go consult a few communities and let's co-create. That's not genuine co-creation. Genuine co-creation is we're in the middle of a crisis like what happened in COVID and you need communities to tell you what they're seeing on the ground and you need communities to innovate at the space of hand washing and figure out how to get water and, and, and you know, social distancing concepts and spread messages, et cetera, across. So really focusing on co-creation. And then just even if I took a step further out in terms of, of context, so there's community systems, but we're all within now very, very fiscally tight um, spaces as countries and at the individual and community level as well. Everybody is making do with less and having to do even more. And I think it really then kind of um, falls into this category of what are the solutions can we bring to this great crisis that we're seeing now from climate, as Krista said, all the way to social protection, you know, um, you know, the unhomed, the um, food insecurity, what's happening with the, with the agriculture, that literal soil is not, is not able to produce anymore. And the, the idea of, of, of public investment and public goods and needing to finance these things is ultimately where these conversations end. Who's gonna fund community-led monitoring? We don't have enough money at the government level. The Ministry of Health barely gets any money from the budget. And so we have to come up with solutions in this time that are outside of what we normally do. And so the concept of all contributing, all deciding, all benefiting uh, as a global public investment concept and community-led monitoring being a, a, an important part of that puzzle in terms of the contribution, the benefits and the decisions that, that need to take place now. You know, in my own personal experience, I have worked in participatory research quite a bit, including qualitative and visual methods such as photo voice. And I think there are many methodologies to capture what's happening in a community. On the other hand, I've done a lot of advocacy around financing and policies and how are we 
supporting the HIV response? How should we structure it? But I've never seen anything that connects those two things better than community-led monitoring. So we are monitoring, we're collecting the whole data story, not just what is happening for viral suppression in HIV, but why is it difficult to adhere to your medication? Here's a photo of my fridge. All I have in it right now is water. Because of inflation rates in my country, I'm no longer able to buy the level of food I need to adhere to my medication. All the way to taking that full picture to policymakers, to decision makers, even at a very local level. Community-led monitoring is also very effective for pinpointing a very, very local issue. Uh, A very quick example, one of our health facilities in Malawi, where we were monitoring, uh, people, of course, are are concerned about privacy in the context of stigma. And on ART collection day, people would wait in a public area with an individual health card that was a different color from everybody else's. So basically, if you're seen sitting in this public area with a health card that's a certain color, everyone knows that you're there to collect your medication and by extension that you're living with HIV. So our data collectors very quickly said, look, it would make a huge difference if we could just have a more private area where people could wait. And by making that change at one local health facility, we've seen an increase in uptake of people being able to access their medications. So that very specific local change is so impactful for people. And we can also find that addressing some of those broader issues can be elevated to regional and national and sometimes global conversations to make solutions better for people's practical lives. So I just think it has enormous potential and we're excited to invite more people under the big tent and let's join forces and work on this collectively. Well, with that, how can folks continue to follow your work? clmhub.org and itpcglobal.org. Our websites are live and active and we'd love to hear from you all. And um, you can also reach out to either Krista or myself and through the podcast connections and contact information if there was a specific collaboration that you're interested in as well. Krista and Solange, thank you so much for spending time with me today. It has been an absolute pleasure and wonderful learning experience. And I know that everyone listening to this podcast will take a tremendous amount away from your wisdom. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And this closes out this episode of the Collective Impact Forum podcast. If you're interested in learning more about what was discussed, you can find links to resources in the footnotes for this episode. We'd like to acknowledge that this episode was produced and edited on the unceded traditional lands of the Coast Salish people, including the Duwamish, Suquamish, Stilquamish, and Muckleshoot tribes. We honor with gratitude the land itself and the past, present, and futures of these tribes. The intro music for this episode was composed by Raphael Crooks, and our outro music was composed by Kevin McLeod. In forum news, we're excited to share that registration is open for several upcoming online workshops that are part of our Essentials for Collective Impact series. On September 28th, we have Facilitating Collaborative Meetings. On October 13th, we have Navigating the Dangers to Collective Impact. And October 26th, we have Building a Culture of Trust in Collective Impact. Please visit our events section of our website at collectiveimpactforum.org if you'd like to join any of these upcoming online sessions. 
This is Tracy Timmons-Gray, Associate Director here at the Collective Impact Forum and your podcast producer. I want to say thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to connecting with you more in our next episode. Until next time, we hope you are safe and well.